If you've got 10, 20 changes going out at the same time, there is a higher chance that there is going to be a problem because you've not just got one change that is understood and isolated and maybe looks good on its own. You've got 20 which may be interacting with each other in subtly different ways. Not only will that take longer to work out what has gone wrong, because your deployment is probably taking hours, even once you've fixed it, it's hours until it's resolved. Hi, I'm Charity Majors. And I'm Shelby Spees. And you're listening to Observability Cast, or OllieCast, a fortnightly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. OllieCast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. I kind of started a couple of years ago. We were growing as a team, and I was in a position where I knew what the system was doing. I could look at a bunch of dashboards and logs, and I understood like the heartbeat of the system, having looked at it like that from, I don't know, one request an hour <laughs> through to however many requests a second or minute we're, we're at the moment. And that made me a huge blocker on pretty much everything and every incident I had to be involved in. And so I was looking at how I could reduce my bus factor and observability seemed to be the tool that was, that that is the way. And we were at an offsite about 18 months ago and I was like, we're going to get to sort out observability so that all the people sat around here have an idea of what's going on in the system, not just me. Yeah. Because, yeah, I understood that I was like tank with the matrix, there's green symbols going everywhere, and I can see the woman in the red dress. Yeah. But people were coming in going, I've sat looking at logs for a day and I still don't understand. It's like That's an amazing metaphor. I love it so much because that is what it's like. When you are the person who built the systems from the ground up, you know, you you get this sixth sense. You can't even explain it sometimes, just like there's something fishy about this, right? And that means that whenever anything goes wrong, people come to you because they don't trust the tooling, they trust you. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. And like so much of like observability is about making it so that what's in your head is more democratically accessible to other people, but with the meaning that you would attach to it, right? Mm -hmm. It's not enough to just give them 10,000 graphs, right? This is why I have one of my favorite stickers is like, log everything, find nothing, die unfulfilled. Mm -hmm. You know, (laughs) it's like you can give people all of the information, Mm -hmm. but unless there is like the grooves that you wear in the system, the, the weight that you attach to it, unless there's some some of the what's in your head in the preparation of it, it, it doesn't actually work to just give them everything. Yeah. yeah. I saw someone say recently that intuition doesn't scale. Mm. So whatever we can do to externalize that and make it part of our system and more available to other members of our team. I think many of us have been on both sides of this where, you know, you're the person who's that single point of failure and you don't have the time or the resources to get that information out of your head. Or you're the person who's just joining a team or sort of new to that ecosystem and you're trying to get that information. And yeah. So I think this is super familiar to a lot of people. So maybe we can break it down to like, how did you get from point A to point Z? Like, how exactly, where did you start? And what did you give them first? And like, what was the feedback cycle like? Like, like how did you start to transfer what's in your head into theirs? So one of the first steps we did was experimenting with um, like a bit more structured logging. Mm -hmm. So we already had um, Kibana that we were looking at logs for. So like emitting sort of 
canonical logs, which I think uh, there's a Stripe blog post about. That, and I was like, oh, let's try that as like the the gateway to something that's closer to observability, like that single log line per transaction, and put that in some key points in our system. And that was like, right, is this now telling me what I see when I look at 100 logs at a time? And can we get some visualizations of that sort of thing? And the answer to that was yes, but it was quite limited. And you had to have a view for everything. And it, it was a bit of a square peg into a round hole of uh, how Kibana kind of wants you to work. Mm-hmm. But it sort of proved that there was better visibility through this route. And then sort of re- mid to late last year, we had the time and budget to be looking at a proper observability tool and Honeycomb had been <laughs> high on the list. I love that you went to structured data first. And I feel like this is one of those, it's really hard to map feelings to like logical, like on the ground, like steps, right? Because it sounds kind of fuzzy and everything, but I do feel like the structuring of the data and the gathering out of it, of it in the right way is such a necessary step. And it's hard to like convey to people what this does, right? But like the shift between grepping through logs to thinking of logs as, as, or conversely, if you're coming from like monitoring land, the shift from going from top level aggregates to these event logs that contain, you know, all the data in these arbitrarily wide structured data blobs, which then you can feed into all of your computer stuff that you do, right? Like you can make functions out of this, you can make algorithms, you can make percentile budgets. And when you're just used to thinking of data as strings, that's not available to you. When you're used to just thinking of data as dashboards and aggregates, that's not available to you. And I feel like it's such a, it is like the first step towards observability. And like, I think we see this over and over again, you can't do it if you don't go through that first step first. Absolutely. And I think before we get into this last part of your journey, this last year of assessing observability tooling, I think now would be a really good time for you to introduce yourself. Yeah. I'm Gary Shetler. I'm CTO and co-founder of Chronify, the scheduling platform for business. Chron is a service? Uh, well, that's kind of where it came from. So scheduling tools. So anything about time when people are available based on the contents of their calendar and rules they have set up and all, all that sort of thing. Nice. And so, yeah, when we come up with the name Cron, being developers and building an API to begin with was where we kind of started. Totally. That's awesome. I feel like some of the most successful startups of the last five years have been companies that have taken fundamental Unix tooling things and then surfaced them to others as, as developers. So that's that's really cool. So what are the sorts of like incidents you're running into that Gary, you were like the only person who could solve them um, that are like specific to what Chronify does? So one of the main things we have is like this synchronization layer where we're talking to your calendar server to understand all the events that are in your calendar. And that's happening all the time, continuously in the background. So there's thousands of events happening a minute, peaking tens, hundreds of thousands of events when... So interesting thing that was surfaced really well through Honeycomb is that the way the exchange protocol works is when you dismiss an alert, that actually triggers a change notification. Mm. That our system goes, oh, something changed. It doesn't actually impact your availability, but we have no way of knowing that. So quarter to the hour, every hour, we have this nice flurry of everybody going dismiss. Yeah. To get work out why that was happening from logs was actually really hard. It was like, I, it took me ages to work out exactly what was going on here. I wonder if Honeycomb tells me. And mm-hmm. seeing those jobs right. come in as inbound notifications and then triggering jobs that are actually checking to see what has changed. 
when you're reading logs, you're reading like what one process does at a time, right? But so many of interesting problems these days are the convergence of, you know, what hundreds or thousands of jobs are doing at the same time. And you're never going to get that from any log file. Yeah, being able to easily sort of go, oh, that job started ramping up in volume. And so that job started ramping up in volume. It's like oh, there's a direct correlation just because those curves match. Yeah. You know, for people like you and me, though, I think it is a bit of a, it's an interesting challenge. And it feels like you're giving up a bit of control when you go from the command line to a tool, right? Like there's this thing buried deep within me to distrust all tools except <laughs> the command line, right? And and like if the tools fail, you fall back to the command line. You just like, you know, you, you go deep into S-Trace and like, you know, you go into all this stuff. And it's been an interesting process for me over the past few years, realizing that the reverse actually happens more often where <laughs> my command line tools fail me and I need to fall back to my tool so that I can see what is happening in aggregate across this distributed system. Yeah, and so as we were adopting observability tooling is forcing myself to stop going to logs and be like, right, start there. Yeah. Can I answer the question there? Because then I can sh- train the team on how you can answer the same question. Right. And so for me, very early on, it was, I am answering this question at least as fast, maybe faster than I would do going to the vlogs that I was comfortable with. And I didn't understand fully Honeycomb at that point. And we weren't pushing as much yeah. the extra attributes and so on that we've decorated jobs and so on with over time. But things were just like leaping out much more easily. And also the team could do that. Like the team can now investigate things much better and about as quickly as or quicker than I can. And that was the sort of the goal we started out with. Isn't that a wonderful and liberating feeling? I feel like the transition between, you know, a system where the debugger of last resort is always the person who's been there the longest, you know, into a system where the best debugger is the person who's most curious or the, who has worked in this the most recently. Like that is such a, on the one hand, for those of us who are used to being the debuggers of last resort, there's a bit of ego to give up there. <laughs> there's a little bit of a sacrifice, but it's, it feels really good. I appreciate that you said like you hadn't started adding a lot of like custom attributes. You hadn't done a lot of custom instrumentation yet. Like I think people underestimate how much value you get from structured event data and distributed trace data just with the auto instrumentation, just with like top level HTTP request data, top level like database query spans. And so I think, I think that's really cool to hear that like before you even learn sort of the ins and outs of the tool, you already started just being able to answer your questions as quickly as you could before. Yeah, well, we had to strip it back even further than that mm-hmm. because we're we're dealing with pretty sensitive data. There's lots of PII. We have European customers, so GDPR, and in California, CCPA, and so we wanted to be very sure about what we were sending to um, Honeycomb. And so we actually started off locally. That's sending way too much data that we don't know everything that we're sending. So we we actually disabled all of that stuff, right. and like you say, put the things around a web request of it. It was this path and this method and this response code and that sort of thing. And then similarly around our job framework was like, it is executing this class and that's about all we allowed it to do. But just knowing volumes of endpoints and volumes of jobs was a good starting point. And then Mm -hmm. for the most important jobs, for example, the ones that I put in those canonical log lines, where those log lines were, let's push every attribute of that log line into the, the span and have Mm -hmm. sort of replaced the canonical log lines with the telemetry. Mm -hmm. Well, to me, the fact that, you know, it's useful out of the box without doing much of instrumentation, to me, that is because (laughs) it it brings to mind the fact that just like 
people right now who don't have observability, who just have, you know, Prometheus or Datadog, whatever aggregates, there are so many gremlins in their software that they have no idea about. Like they just, you know, and as soon as you pick up that rock, you add event level instrumentation, everything. It's just like, oh shit, there's a bug. Oh shit, that happens. Oh my God, there are these outliers. You know, oh wow, this user never succeeds, right? Like aggregates cover up so many sins. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so yeah, like the initial switch is really powerful. But also I feel like there's kind of a, a battle for hearts and minds going on right now between the people who are like, instrumenting your code is a waste of time. You should be spending all your time on doing business value, attach an agent that does all of the magic for you versus the people who, who are correct, <laughs> who say that only you will ever know your code. Only you know how to pick up the things that are important that need to be, instru- you know, like, yes, automatic stuff can do amazing things for you, like out of the box. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then it should support you. Like it's like commenting your code, mm-hmm. right? You can never get back to that original intent. If you didn't mm-hmm. capture it at the time that you make it. it's the same thing with instrumentation. You can't expect anyone else to divine that from your code. Mm-hmm. It's, it's unreasonable. And, and it's also like, like it's on us as providers to make this easy for you to make this intuitive, to provide handlers and backups and retries and like all the stuff that makes it as easy as adding a printf right? Mm-hmm. But it's on you, the developer, to add the fucking printf once you're like, this thing matters, mm-hmm. right? And no agent will ever do that for you correctly. And the thing is, the people who are like, let's fix it in post, you know, and the agents are fine. They spend way more time than, you know, the developer adding a printf. Well, the people who fix it in post spend way more time pouring over the config <laughs> options for their agents going, mm-hmm. uh, what field matters? Which one should I like pluck out? You know, they spend way more time doing their orders of magnitudes of more time doing that. I was talking to someone earlier about this, about um, sort of crossing the threshold from agents that live outside of your code to SDKs that live inside of your code and how much more you can get from just like, it's the same level of effort to like deploy an agent as it is to like add an SDK to your dependencies. And it's the same amount of configuration. It's the same API key. One is just outside your code and one is inside. And I think that's something that we don't talk about enough is just that immediate like gain. But Gary, I think you touched on something really important where I was so excited when I started learning about structure event data and like, look, you can capture everything. You can capture your user logins and you can capture like the exact comment someone made on the exact like Discord bot, whatever. But like you make a very good point that like as we start adding all this custom instrumentation, it expands our like security risk footprint, right? Especially for people using auto instrumentation. Um, We've seen this with our Rails integration where, you know, Postgres will sanitize the queries, but MySQL won't. And it'll include all the query parameters. And so like, can you give any advice about how people should like assess that risk? We're pretty risk averse when it comes to data. So we just stripped all of that out. And it is something that we would like to at least get statistics on volume of queries being made and that sort of thing. So we've got latency of the overall request, but mm-hmm. maybe like counters of how many queries we're doing. And if that's like, what that's doing 50, what? <laughs> Five or 10 or something might be acceptable, but 50 would be a bit of an outlier mm-hmm. because then there's no data in there, but it's, it gives you something to look at. And then maybe we can put some additional telemetry in there. Mm-hmm. But sort of the lowest hanging fruit we had was every request like for our API belongs to an OAuth client. So we added that ID and it's usually relating to a specific account on our side. And so we added that ID. Now we can look at 
support cases, oh, we're getting slow responses from your API, I can go, every request for your client, here is a chart of your latency for every endpoint that you've called in the past month, Mm -hmm. if you think it's super slow. I love that. And that's exactly what we do at Honeycomb when someone comes in and it's like, is like with a support question, is it just me or our query is slow right now? And it's like, oh, no, it turns out your, you know, secure tenancy configuration is messed up on your account. Like, let's fix that for you. And just being able to break down by user ID, you know, without having to, to keep all of that, like the more sensitive data, you know, just enough customer instrumentation, just enough user data to, to be able to debug the stuff that is only on a subset of traffic mm. or is only on certain kinds of users who have a lot of data attached to them um, and things like that, where we start to see these worst case scenarios that do have ripple effects across the whole system, right? So yeah, I, I like that approach, the, the sort of incremental like customer instrumentation stuff. And yeah, I do think, I think that's something that I've sort of failed in talking about customer instrumentation so far where I'm just like, add fields for everything. And it's like, no, we, you know, we do need to be smart and intentional about what we're including, but we don't have to feel limited by our tooling is sort of the the value there when we're starting to use structure event data, when we have a distributed column store that can just consume arbitrary fields and make them available for you. You said you wanted to talk about continuous deployment. Can you talk about how you do that at Chronify? Yeah, so over the years, we started from just the two of us, Adam, my co-founder and myself, pushing to Heroku. And that was our sort of CI. And we maybe had like a Jenkins box in the middle to run the unit tests and that sort of thing. And as we've grown, we moved to Cloud 66 to get, they provide a Heroku-like experience, but you get a bit more control over the AWS instances and so on that are sitting beneath that. So we've always been sort of CI and CD closely, but occasionally there was button presses involved when we switched over to Kubernetes two and a half, three years ago, something like that, we were running two production data centers, a German and a US one, and uh, and there weren't many many of us, so someone such as myself having to click a couple of buttons wasn't a big deal. But we now have six data centers. Uh, since last year, we started with two, and now we have six because we've expanded to Australia, Singapore, UK, and Canada is the, the newest one. And clicking six buttons is very tedious. Yeah. <laughs> and so we started, we got Jenkins behind the scenes of powering that. So we started out experimenting with like a script that ops, the people with the, the admins could run so that it was effectively one button click of sorts. And now then we move that to Jenkins and now that's pushed via GitHub so that as soon as a pull request is merged, that kicks off a production deploy. Mm-hmm. And what that does is... It's just taken me and the other more privileged admins out of the loop again. Um, what we found when we were going down the compliance route of doing SOC 2 and ISO 27001 is that a lot of that is about how do you know that people aren't doing random things to the system yeah. at any point in time? It's about auditing. And when we go, we only deploy via source control things on the infrastructure, full infrastructure side of Terraform, and on the application side of things, this CID pipeline that is fully automated that no one can work around. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's fine. That's that's a box ticked because mm-hmm. even the process itself is source controlled. So changes to that process get approved through the regular change management uh, system. Mm-hmm. So yeah they were very comfortable with continuous deployment Mm -hmm. because it is fully reproducible. You did it basically from very early on too, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I feel like 
continuous deployment is one of those things that, you know, if you have this mature system that like takes, you know, say it takes weeks to get it built out, it's pretty daunting. It's pretty difficult to get that down to, you know, minutes. But if you just start that way from day one or day two, like that is the easy path. Like you just maintain. Everybody knows it and they incorporate it into their workflow and their expectations and you just maintain. And that is the easiest way, I think, to build and run software. Yeah, I uh, fully agree. I, I mean, myself and my co-founder, he, he was previous CTO. We're both developers. Yeah. And so we're like, we're just going to do everything right. Yeah, <laughs> from day one, Woo. no one's going to tell us otherwise. But yeah, in, in previous companies, we have a fortnightly or monthly recycles. Yeah, when we were so painful redoing the web tier, that we actually redid that in Rails, and so we had continuous deployment on the bit that changed the most. Yeah, and we worked slowly on sort of releasing that back end yeah. um, more towards weekly, and we got towards doing it a couple of times a week or something like that. So it was still half an hour, an hour of somebody doing it reasonably manually. But if we really needed to, we could do it several times a day. Right. Whereas the front end, which was what was changing the most, rather than sort of the model and the engine behind it, we were able to sort of do that well. And that allowed us to iterate faster on the part that was iterating the most frequently. And so we got sort of the most of the benefits without going the whole hog. Did you find that moving to CICD has made it easier for you to recruit and retain? I think what we say at Chronify is that come here and argue about just how well we do it, not whether we should be doing it the right way. It's just like precisely exactly how well should we be doing right. it is the kind of conversations we want to have. Yeah. So I'd like to think it's the sort of company that I of 10 years ago would have really wanted to work at. Yeah, I feel like it's one of those things that once you've seen it in motion, you really can't imagine working any other way. And if you haven't seen it, if you haven't actually participated in a system like that, it sounds so scary and unattainable and foreign that it's, I think it is really hard for technologists to go out on a limb and go, I'm going to sacrifice my personal political capital at this company to push for this thing that sounds kind of scary that I've never actually seen work, but a lot of people on the internet say it does. You know, I feel like that's just kind of a gap that many people won't do. So I wonder, like, why did you? Is this something you had seen working before? Uh, I suppose it's a long while ago. It's just sort of putting faith in the internet being correct. <laughs> so right. it's a bit like unit testing. Yeah. It's like when I was first a junior developer, lots of people say that this is a really good idea. I'm going to try it out. Right. And maybe I will be doing that in my spare time or something just to be like, right. I feel bad wasting the company's time if this is just completely not a thing. But um, Interesting. Usually it's the lead time to like a change if there's a bug having to wait till next week for it to be fixed Mm -hmm. or having to dedicate a day to releasing it because that's the release process. You know, I have a story about this. So I just got my first vaccine, got my little Band-Aid right there. Pretty proud of that. And when I was trying to sign up for the vaccine, you know, appointments, I was using the Walgreens site. And every time it was like back-end server error or like no appointments available, just like Every time, and I was so frustrated. I tried every zip code in the city. I was trying for days and everything, and eventually realized because I did not have a gender set in my profile, it was returning a generic server error every time. We're saying that there were no appointments available, and I found a thread on Reddit where they figured this out about a month or two ago. I'm sitting here thinking, 
is this because Walgreens deployment pipeline is just, it takes like months to get a change out and this is why they can't fix it so that I, cause it's such a small change. It's like literally like just error handling needs to be a little bit better, right? Just tell me what to do instead of like telling me that there are no appointments available. Hmm. And yet it's been up there for months. It's a known problem. Internet fixed it for you. Like, why is this still, you know? And I, and I just, I feel like it's such a great capsule example of why it's not okay for software to take a long time to be digested, right? Mm-hmm. It's like digestion. It's like one of my favorite quotations of the last couple of months was like, software that you have written and not yet deployed ages like fine milk. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it does because you have all this context in your head, you know, why you mm-hmm. built it, you know, what you did, you know, what you tried, you know, the whole path, the trade-offs, but it decays really rapidly. Like, you've got it all in your head for what minutes, maybe an hour or two. As soon as you've flipped your attention to the next project, you've evacuated all of that past knowledge in in your page in the next set of knowledge, right? It doesn't linger long. It is not, if you don't capture it when you have it, it's going to be like exponentially more difficult for you or anyone else to capture it at some point in the future. Mm -hmm. It's not like we're saying what you wrote, you just have to use within 15 minutes. This is why your feature flags are around, right? Mm-hmm. Decoupling releases from deploys, making the stuff safe. But if you can't get your code out into the wild quickly, that stuff that only exists in your head rapidly decays and then it rots and then it's just no good. Also, like understanding what caused the problem. Exactly. Like if you're releasing once a week, there's 10 or changes in that. That's the thing. If it's more than minutes, if it gets into hours, then I guarantee that you're batching up changes, right? You're not shipping one engineer's diff at a time, which is how you get software ownership over changes, right? It is reasonable to ask an engineer, you know, if you merge domain, it's in a few minutes, you go and you look at it and you ask yourself, is it doing what I expected? Does anything else look weird, right? That is a reasonable request for a software engineer. But if it's going to be shipped at some unknown period of time, somewhere between minutes and days from now, batched up with one to 10 to 15 other engineers' changes, it's not actually reasonable (laughs) because, you know, it fails. Now it's the problem of whoever pushed the button to deploy, which makes an incentive for people to not push the button to deploy, which makes your changes like stretch out to be longer and longer, which makes your diffs bigger and bigger and your code use longer and longer. It's just like this death spiral that you get into. I really like the, Gary, how you've connected this to like, auditing and and compliance and stuff, because I think a lot about the importance of like our commit history and being able to go back and like reproduce and and walk through the exact changes. And I think the same should be true for our builds and our deploys. And the number of times that I've had things that worked great in isolated PRs and they were reviewed and the batched up change like in aggregate, especially with the ground shifting beneath us and like underlying dependency changes and the the two weeks between when my PR got merged in and when the entire batch of things got sent out. And this was on not just like on the code, but also on our configuration, like our chef code got batched up as well. And so it was so hard to reproduce that stuff and debug. And so it's totally a compliance concern. You know, the decision to merge in code and have your, you know, your Git source of truth, making that also your deploy source of truth just sort of removes a lot of question marks, right? It adds a lot of certainty. And so I I really appreciate that because I think a lot of businesses don't see the the potential cost of like that diff between I merged something in and now it's in production, but it's been collecting dust for two weeks and entropy and all of that stuff. Mm. You know, like we talk a lot about the engineer mental cost, but I think it's really important to talk about just sort of the business risks of like 
just the impact of these things and having that tight feedback loop? Well, I think that there's sort of two factors that, like if you've got 10, 20 changes going out at the same time, there is a higher chance that there is going to be a problem because you've not just got one change that is understood and isolated and maybe looks good on its own. You've got 20, which may be interacting with each other in subtly different ways. And not only will that take longer to work out what has gone wrong, because your deployment is probably taking hours, even once you've fixed it, it's hours until it's resolved. So your like, mean time to recovery is at least as long as your deployment time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's at least as long as your deployment time. Like that, that interval between when you write the code and when the code is live in production, it is the base unit, right? Like you can never fix anything faster than that. You can never ship anything faster than that. It can be longer, but it can never be shorter than that. And then there's a real problem when you have emergency ways to deploy that bypass your actual ways to deploy that you test every day, right? When you've got a process that you do every day, but it takes an hour or two, well, then you have a problem. Suddenly you're not going to wait an hour or two. You're going to like bypass all that. You're going to do something else that you don't test every day. And then now you have two problems. I've never edited a file on live servers because that will fix it in minutes. <laughs> no, 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 never. Never did a distributed SSH out to just copy out the file and restart for fuck's sake because it takes two hours to deploy the code. Yeah, never. Well, I loved your story, Gary, and, and I was so happy that you agreed to come on this podcast because I feel like at this point, there's a lot of us who are out there just kind of ranting about, this is the way, this is the way, right? But like, I, when I'm talking to you over Twitter, I feel like, you know, you're someone who has gone through this, you've been through the weeds very recently, and I think you took a lot of it on faith. You know, I remember when you were arguing about, should there be a manual like button or something? And you're just like, fuck it, I'm going to try this, you know? I think it's really nice for people to hear just like very recent hard fought battles that had good outcomes that kind of demonstrate what can be won from adopting this sort of stuff. Yeah. But what sort of tipped the balance for me on the button? Cause the button was there. It's like, sometimes we might merge three minor changes just cause they happen to go out of the same typo isn't going to do anything. Yeah. And then we press a button to avoid a, an extra deploy. Basically that, that, that was part of it. But What's the harm in additional deploys? Like, if you're doing them all the time, they're super low risk. I love what the intercom people say, which is that when you're a software company, shipping code is your heartbeat. It is the heartbeat of your organization. And as a heartbeat, it should be as regular, as common, as quick, as unobtrusive. It should be a nothing burger. It should just happen all the time without anybody having to think about it. And I think that this is how we put that into practice. So... Anything else? Any closing remarks, Shelby? I was just tweeting what Gary said right now. Uh, what's the harm in deploying more often? And it's exactly, it's, there's no harm. It, you know, deploy should be boring. <laughs> deploy should be boring. Make deploys boring. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Gary, for joining us. Thanks, Gary. No problem. That was a delightful conversation that I enjoyed and hope you did too. If you're interested in being a guest in this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at Ollicast. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time.